0: So tonight I'm going to talk about one of my heroes, who <clears throat> was actually not a Buddhist, but his uh, psychology was, wound up being so Buddhist that now many teachers uh, and, of course, therapists, he was a psychologist and a philosopher, integrate his work. He was a man who preceded John Kabat-Zinn, who in the 1970s created mindfulness-based stress reduction, his name was uh, Eugene Gendlin, and he was born in Vienna in the 1930s and escaped the Nazis. His family was Jewish on the last boat out of Austria. And he wound up uh, living mostly in New York. And uh, So I'll talk about uh, his practice focusing, which has enormous overlaps with Buddhist mindfulness and and uh, self-therapy practices in general. And you can see if you like the method method that he proposed or not. And uh, so I'm going to start out with a little bit of the uh, background. We construct our sense of self, who I am, Uh, by internalizing what's said about us by others when we're children, often in our family system, and also by observing the way people interact with each other and seeing what kind of behavior gets attention and kindness and what kind of, uh, especially attention, is what children deeply want more than anything else. Human beings are attention-seeking missiles, and we will do anything... To get attention. All of the major cluster B personality disorders stem from the extreme links we tried to get attention in family systems that were not very, well, attentive. So we construct a self in a couple of different ways, a sense of who we are. We have an egoic self, which is essentially all of the attributes we believe that we have based on what people tell us. But then there's also a shadow self, which is essentially, I'm borrowing a term by Jung, but it's essentially emotions and impulses that we have, but we see from watching other people, or we see from the way our parents regard us when we have these feelings and impulses, that they lead to rejection, shame, blame, Uh, being punished. So, for instance, if you grow up uh, with same-sex attraction in a homophobic family, you might well try to, for a long time, repress your impulses into a shadow self and wear a social mask that is uh, presenting as being straight until you can no longer keep the repressed feelings uh, hidden. So again, we have this egoic self, which is all the attributes that we have told we have that are not scary. And then we also carry a shadow self comprised of other feelings and emotions that we have, but those which we believe will lead to rejection. Um, So in my family, uh, being creative... Being funny, I was actually rewarded for talking, being funny with my parents, even giving my them a hard time. But any feeling of uh, discontent or uh, dissatisfaction was met with a great deal of shaming and guilting, because they were immigrants. My mother was Jewish and dirt poor when she re- when she was a child, and so. Uh, expressing any form of discontent led to immediate um, negative uh, reception. And so as an adult, it's still difficult for me when people try to apologize for things they've done that weren't skillful. It's difficult for me to even acknowledge at times, because I was trained you immediately accept uh, apologies and you never show any sign of... uh, discontent or disapproval or dissatisfaction. We have a third self which is not based at all on anything that's inherent. It's a set of attributes that we see from our observation of others leads always to approval and recognition and that's what Freud called the superego or the ideal self. And we all carry around the story that If only I were always confident, always relaxed, always, you know, uh, uh, funny. If I never got nervous, if I never felt social anxiety, then it would be great. So the social mask that we put on before each other and wear through our jobs and when we go to a wedding and a a social gathering, we put on the social mask, which is largely constructed of the um, ideal self. We act as if we are confident, even though we might not feel confident or relaxed. And we also present some of the parts of ourselves from the egoic self that we believe are somewhat acceptable, like we can talk about nerdy things, People, for some reason, like to talk about how the drive was. I've never understood that. I've never in my life. That was the drive up. Who the fuck cares? <laughs> it's the most boring. <laughs> There's, that has never led to an interesting conversation. It just hasn't. Um, Unless you were hijacked, right? Maybe you you were kidnapped or hijacked, then you've got a a story that might raise an eyebrow. Our stressful situations in life tend to, however, trigger impulses from the repressed shadow self because very often what's stuck down there are survival impulses that as children work but as adults got a lot of shame, or even as children got shame. In my case, some children under stress just tune out, dissociate, just check out, put their hands over their eyes. I got really nervous and anxious and just tried to cling. <laughs> and so, so uh, under stressful conditions, that anxiety can come out. I don't find it in myself very attractive, but I've learned that I've had to acknowledge it because it's not going away. Life, you don't get to get rid of your impulses and feelings and emotions. You just have to learn how to hold them and be with them and skillfully use them. So when our felt experience, the stuff that we feel in our body and our emotions contradict our social mask or our ideal self or the thing we want to show other people, guess what we feel. Anybody got a guess? Yep. Exactly right. So the feeling of anxiety is the feeling that there's something in me that is contradicting what I want others to believe about me. I want others to think I'm funny. I just said it. I just have, I don't feel funny. (laughs) I don't, I want other people to think that I'm Smart, and the only thing I'm feeling right now is, is overpowered and uh, stuck, and whatever. Uh, I want other people to believe that I'm effortless at speaking, but I'm really not. Let me really just uh, acknowledge that. But for a long time, when I started teaching, I tried to at least look like one of those, you know, the sort of like Buddhist. Teachers or yoga teachers that have this, welcome, I'm so, sit, be comfortable, like this demeanor that I've never had in my entire life. <laughs> I just do not do, I'm a Jew from the Upper West Side and then from the Lower East Side. I don't do that kind of like soothing ease. I would love it if I could. But molecularly, it's biologically impossible for me. (laughs) I was once at an AA meeting. I've been sober for 23 years, so that once was actually spread over 23 years every day. Now, I stopped going every day many, many years ago, but I still stop in. But I was once at an AA meeting where everybody sounded completely fucking nuts. And just... I was like, I'm in a fucking insane asylum here that was unlabeled. And I looked at my sponsor and I said, what the fuck is going on here? These people are completely nuts. And he said, yeah, but you didn't see them before they came in. (laughs) So you didn't see me before I started meditating on a daily basis 22 years ago. It could be worse. So... Nothing really well, cognitive therapy, let me say first, cognitive therapy um, tries to lead to some kind of behavioral change and real change by changing by addressing the way we think about ourselves and narrate our experience It's a top down therapeutic modality in the sense that uh Very often, a cognitive therapist will ask you to label thoughts, ask you to reality test your thoughts, and the idea is if you have a story about who you are that's very uh, negative, if you change the story, then there can be, or if you learn to stay away from the uh, cognitions that lead to stress, then that will lead to lasting change. And I don't want to contradict them and say that uh, it's a waste of time, because it's not. It's very useful. It's very wonderful to learn how to step aside from one's thoughts, evaluate them, and not climb into them. But ultimately, um, the, the work of people like Alan Shore and uh, Peter Fanagi and, and uh, Pat Ogden and uh, so forth uh, tends to show, Oh, Bressel, van der Kolk, they all tend to show that real change starts from acknowledging and connecting with your felt experience. Even the felt experience that's that's associated with your shadow self, those feelings of fear, awkwardness, sadness, um, tightness, that feeling of being small, that feeling of not being lovable, wherever it's felt in the body, connecting with it. Because people tend to, and I'm, just, I'm going to say this twice because I think it's kind of important, people tend to act in accordance with how they feel, not how they think. Again, we act in accordance with how we feel, not how we think. Um, a lot of really... Long-term neuroscience has shown that before thought, the impulses that create behavior and create um, and, in fact, enact thought starts physiologically. And if you're trying to change your impulses, your feelings, the things that are really at the heart of suffering by addressing the thoughts, you're too late. The impulse to act starts and is felt in the body as an action impulse starts at about a tenth of a second after you see something scary. It takes about six tenths of a second before you actually have a a thought. And in that, almost your entire body gets into the tightness and the reactivity that prepares you to act it out. The only thing that thought allows you to do is, if you're really lucky, say, no! Don't do that. You know, you, for instance, you see somebody who's looking at you a certain way. It reminds you of the way that your siblings or mean kids acted, and you might want to get the hell out or say something in response to this feeling that you have that you're being judged. But something, a thought, finally arises right before the action that says, hold off, let's ask a question before we assume that we're being Um, essentially categorized so change involves neither acting out our repressed nor repressing our repressed it's in connecting with it, feeling it and then learning how to express it to another human being so that we correct the early childhood experience that led to repression in the first place, in my case My parents, as I said, didn't like any form of um, dissatisfaction, didn't like uh, anxiety. They preferred people who were confident, even though my mom was very anxious. So to get to a place where I could adjust and address those feelings, I had to be able to feel them, hold them, and then be able to communicate them. To people I trusted. Right now, I know I might seem, I would say to uh, my therapist Chodo, who's a Buddhist therapist, I might seem like I'm feeling okay, but there's this part of me that's feeling really anxious or worried, or et or cetera. And I know that because I feel it in my chest. And he would drum this into me session after session. He'd start with, how do you feel, before allowing me to talk about an experience or talk about a memory. Always... How do you feel in your body? And that's very much in accordance with the Buddha who said, always start with awareness of feelings and the breath, and then if you can hold that, you might find that all of the thinking and the obsession and the worry begins to change if you can just hold it rather than try to repress it. Because that's ultimately what thought is. It's an attempt to distract us from our feelings very often. Thought can sometimes be, don't do that, it's a bad idea, but very often obsessive thought is the way we repress painful physiological emotions that we don't want to feel, sadness, loneliness, you know, grief, whatever. We go into this obsessive thinking. So this is where Genlin comes in. Uh, He was a trainee under the great Carl Rogers and in the late 50s and 60s before uh, mindfulness came about, the mindfulness revolution, I should say, by John Kabat-Zinn, his research demonstrated, a decade of research, demonstrated that that clients only were making significant lasting change to the degree that they could access the nonverbal feelings that accompanied the issues that brought them into therapy to the point if you go into therapy or if you go into any kind of group, you don't really experience lasting change until you can feel the, the somatic emotions, the tightness, the contraction, the energy, the nervousness, the, th- the lump in the throat, the, the tickling in the back of the neck, all of it that was the real motor of the discomfort and suffering. So he had a a, um, a certain strategy uh, and I'm going to list it to you and then we're actually going to do it as our meditation. So you actually will learn tonight how to focus. That's what he called it, focusing. He wrote the book, Focusing, in 1978 and it was actually uh wi- wi- widely bought around the world not so much in america <laughs> sometimes in america there it had some success but uh genlin was if i if i called him genlin is genlin and i had, keep on trying to remember that um so the first thing to do is just find a safe space where you don't have to worry about what's going around you you don't have to keep track of anything like Text messages, emails—you don't have to keep track of the world, and you can focus inwardly in your, your the body. It's called interoception, feeling. And then you ask yourself, "How do I feel about this issue? Like uh, changing my job, having to go home to see my family." How do I feel about that interaction I had with my partner that was really uncomfortable? Or simply, how do I feel about my life? The second, after clearing the space, is locating the feelings that arise with that issue. As you hold the issue, you feel what's beneath it in the body. And Genlin again and again said, stay away from your thoughts about it. Just hold the issue... Go and find the feelings, but don't go into your thoughts, the diatribe, the, the beliefs, everything that's in language. Stay away from the, the ideas, just go into the embodied experience. The third part is labeling, which essentially is allow from the feeling uh, an image, or some kind of sign or some kind of simple word or phrase that you will use to represent it. And so you're changing now the issue to this new thing. So first we came in because we were upset about a conversation with a loved one. We feel the tightness or the lump in our throat or the hollowness in our chest. And we ask it, how should I know you? And up comes this thing, anger. Or sadness or tightness or loneliness or I can't do this a phrase or just an image comes up whatever it is is your label and you just sit going back and forth with that feeling knowing the label that helps you feel it and then finally the label helps keeping you away from your thoughts and then finally ask the feeling what do you want me to know what do you need how can I make you feel safe and just feel it and allow whatever it wants you to know to drift up from the body up into the mind this is a classic bottom-up somatic therapeutic modality there's no thinking it through the answer doesn't come from up here it comes from the heart okay finally If you ever get to the point where you ask it, what do I need, what do I need, what can I give you, and you start to feel a shift in the feeling, that's what we're aiming for. If suddenly the tightness relaxes or the lump in the throat dissipates or the tightness in the shoulders, whatever's in the body starts to dissipate, then by asking and attending to the feeling, you're beginning to address those old early wounds. Now I'm going to close before we do our meditation and say that it's tempting to believe that all change can just happen from this internal experience. But the last part of the puzzle is to talk with someone you trust and express the experience. Because until you get the corrective experience of someone receiving those shadow self-buried emotions and feelings you haven't completed the circle, you're still presenting a shadow self, I mean a, a social mask to other people. So we feel, we connect, we actually find, if we can, something that will address the feelings. We, if we're lucky we have a slight felt change and then we find someone and we talk about it. Okay? So thank you for listening. I'm going to have a sip of water, find a comfortable seat. So closing the eyes or looking at the ground in front of you. Well, actually, before we close our eyes, I'll take that back. Just take a look around the room and feel that you're in a safe space. <laughs> and uh, then close the eyes. And knowing that you're in a safe space, we can now clear out our attention with the outside world. If you need to monitor the outside world, hear the sounds that are of the fan and drifting in from the streets. And we're going to start, the first part, before we go into the focusing, we're just going to develop a settled attention, or as close as we can get to one, and that generally involves finding an anchor, which is a present time sensation that goes on without you putting much effort into it. So you don't need to put much effort into breathing. You don't need to put much effort into hearing the sounds that are arriving. You don't need to put much effort into noticing the closed-eye visuals that are going on behind the eyelids, not images that you conjure up, just those flickering lights if you have them. You don't have to put any effort into feeling all the contact sensations, which would be feeling this contact with the cushion that you're sitting on, legs. Connecting with the ground, feet, buttocks connected with the cushion or chair, contact with clothes, contact with any breeze from the fan above. So I'm going to stop now for about 10 minutes, and we'll just do this. I'm going to get a refill for my glass of water. But we're going to just sit with whatever sensation you're going to hold in mind. If it's difficult to keep the breath in mind, no worries, you can either count the breaths, one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out, up to whatever number you want and then count back down. But always try to keep the odd numbers on the in-breath and the even numbers on the out-breath. If your mind's really jumpy, you might want to extend the out-breaths. If you're really sleepy, you might want to, at times, open an eye on the in-breath, hold it as long as you can before releasing the out-breath. The most important attributes in a meditation are kindness, self-compassion, patience, forgiveness. In other words, never get frustrated, and if you do, just acknowledge that it's not helpful. Spiritual practice is not founded on any form of self-criticism. So when you drift away from your anchor, just in the most friendly, accepting, compassionate awareness, just gently escort your mind back to your anchor, the breath, contact sensations, sounds, lights behind closed eyelids. You might even want to make a mental note of which thought pulled you away so that you can make a note just to ask that thought to come back later. So at this point, you can allow the anchor that you've tried to hold in attention just to recede into the background. Don't push it away. Just allow it to drift from the front of the stage in the mind to backstage. So I'd like you to bring... To mind is a thought, an issue that's come to mind a couple of times, of late or more. Could be a conflict with someone, uh, an important decision you need to make. It could be concerns about something or frustrations with some quality of your life. Frustrations with someone in your life. Just a topic that feels difficult to resolve. And just hold an image that represents that issue, maybe a face of someone. And just ask yourself, how do I feel about this? Now, if no issue comes to mind right now, just ask yourself, how do I feel about my life right now? And go into the body and see if you can scout out as you ask again, how do I feel about this? Or how do I feel about my life right now? Just see if you can find any slight sense of tightness or hollowness or numbness. Something that you can somehow tell is an expression of an underlying emotion that's associated with this issue. It takes some practice, but when you do stumble upon the tight shoulders, the furrowed, needlessly tight brow, a certain quality in the heart space, Something denoting a feeling about this issue. Very often a feeling that we don't like to feel. If you have any thoughts that pop up, don't go into them. Just allow them to be there but focus on feelings in the body, sensations, tightness, At this point, if you found something in your body that you sense is connected with the topic, a feeling connected with the topic, the issue, the conflict, just see if naturally floating up from this feeling there's any word or phrase or image or symbol that could represent it in the parts of your mind that are not about feeling the body that are more about words and ideas if nothing comes up no worries but if there is a label that comes up. Just hold both the feeling and the label and see if you can sense it's a good fit. And if it's not, just see if another label comes up. And now feeling that feeling, address it with a question, ask it. What can I offer you? What do you need? How can I take care of you? Addressing it the way a concerned parent would address a child that's been trying to get the parent's attention to see if you can find in the most compassionate question how you can meet this need, this feeling, this sense in your body. What can you do for it? How can you make it feel more welcome? Can you simply assure it that you won't repress it, ignore it, push it down? Can I not push down my loneliness, my fear, my disappointment? And as you ask and try out different gifts you could offer this feeling, if at any point there's a sudden shift in the feeling, then you know you're on to something. And finally, whatever your experience has been, just take a moment receiving, allowing the experience to be fully appreciated. We spend so much of our lives trying to figure out how to act, trying to think it through trying to come up with a plan, to see if we can spend a moment just really appreciating all of the feelings that are real, sacred guides through life. The core vehicle, how the emotional mind speaks to us. So finally bring an image of yourself to mind whatever age you feel naturally comes to mind whether the way you look today or the way you looked 10 years ago or as a child and just express some form of Kindness to yourself. May you find peace. May I find ease. May I know lasting peace of mind. So when you hear the sound of the bowl the sole encouragement is to take a moment when you just open your eyes halfway, the lids halfway, so that you just look at the ground in front of you, taking in light and color. And integrate sight into this embodied awareness you've just cultivated. And then whenever you're ready and you feel you can still carry the feelings with you, then begin to look around the room.